June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Margaret Brennan, and there is breaking news in the war against ISIS, and it's a blockbuster. President Trump announced that the U.S. had conducted a special operations mission that killed the senior leader of the terrorist group, the Islamic State, or ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Last night, the United States brought the world's number one terrorist leader to justice, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, is dead. He died like a dog. He died like a coward. The world is now a much safer place. Mr. Trump detailed the raid and al-Baghdadi's death in graphic terms. I got to watch much of it. He died after running into a dead-end tunnel, whimpering and crying and screaming all the way. He had dragged three of his young children with him. They were led to certain death. He reached the end of the tunnel as our dogs chased him down. He ignited his vest, killing himself and the three children. His body was mutilated by the blast, but test results gave certain immediate and totally positive identification. It was him. And Vice President Pence is on his way here. He will be speaking with us. But while we wait, we are lucky to be able to turn now to CBS News national security correspondent David Martin. You were here, David, listening with me to the president describe in uh, longer than 45 minutes in graphic detail this raid. Uh, He said he was watching it from the Situation Room happen. What stood out to you? Well, first place, we should say one of the headlines is no U.S. casualties, uh, except the dog, who he described went into the, uh, the tunnel after Baghdadi and was injured by the blast when Baghdadi set off his uh, suicide vest. And then <clears throat> the question was, well, if somebody's going to uh, blow themselves up, how do you identify the remains? He, he said that they had uh, DNA samples with them and were able to make a match uh, within 15 minutes of Baghdadi blowing himself up, and then they collected all the body parts and brought them out with them, along with some unspecified number of uh, prisoners who had surrendered. And he gave some idea of of the scope of this operation. Uh, He he said, uh, all all told, it took about four and a half hours, an hour and ten minutes in, two hours on the ground, an hour and ten minutes out. We don't know where it was launched from. We don't. We're going to have to do some backtracking to see where you could get from in an hour and in uh, and ten minutes. Uh, <clears throat> but this was a large force, eight helicopters. To just put it in perspective, the uh, the force that went into uh, Bin Laden's compound, two helicopters, twenty-five Navy SEALs. They had some others in reserve, uh, but. This this sounds like it was a bigger operation, and one which had been in the works for a number of weeks. He said 
they, they had somehow found out his travel mm -hmm. schedule, um, but that uh, one of Baghdadi's security procedures is to change his mind about where he's going next at the last minute. Um, but he went to this one place, and the, he, the president said they were able to confirm that he was there, gave the launch, and it, he said it took off uh, uh, shortly after 5 p.m. yesterday evening. And the president was narrating it in such detail, it was almost movie-like in his description. Mm -hmm. um, but as he described Baghdadi, he, he talked about the others in the room, uh, including many new members of his national security team. He also did acknowledge Gina Haspel, the CIA director, was key to, mm -hmm. to so much of this. Um, you've learned it was Delta Force commandos who carried this out. That's what I've been told. Delta the president Force. didn't reveal that detail <clears throat> in his the, remarks. The Army equivalent of... of of the Navy SEALs. Uh, and uh, I would, just from listening to that description, I haven't had anybody tell me this, I would imagine there, they, there was a small group of Delta Force that would go into the compound. The compound would be surrounded by a larger group of probably Army Rangers providing security to keep mm -hmm. anybody from coming to the uh, compound. David Martin, uh, you have some busy reporting ahead of you. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, and we do want to take a, a closer look at Abu Bakr Baghdadi, who he was, why he was such a high-value target. Uh, he was not only the leader of ISIS, but he was blamed for inspiring this terrorist movement that really found followers all around the world. Foreign correspondent Holly Williams has more on who he was. He proclaimed himself the caliph or leader of a so-called Islamic State. But in reality, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was a hate preacher who presided over a death cult of utter barbarity. With a $25 million reward offered by the U.S., he was rarely captured on camera. This video, released in April, was his first appearance in five years, and apparently his last. It's thought he was born in Iraq in 1971. After the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, Baghdadi was detained in a prison camp that became an incubator for jihadis. When he was released, he joined al-Qaeda's offshoot in Iraq, rising to become its leader. He later moved into the chaos of Syria's civil war and split from al-Qaeda. At its peak, ISIS ruled over an estimated 10 million people in Iraq and Syria. The loss of their last strip of territory in March, and now Baghdadi, won't be the end of their ideology. That's CBS News foreign correspondent Holly Williams, who now joins us from Istanbul, Turkey, this morning. Uh, Holly, the president described Baghdadi as the number one terrorist in the world. Does removing him from the battlefield actually kill ISIS itself? No, it won't, Margaret. I mean, uh, for ISIS, uh, this is the very significant and symbolic loss of their so-called caliph. And of course, it shows that the U.S. will spare no effort in hunting down the leaders of terrorist organizations. But in the end, ISIS is not about one man. It's the expression of an ideology. Uh, it's not the first terrorist group of this type, and it certainly won't be the last. Uh, Al-Baghdadi and ISIS did distinguish themselves, if you will, by being particularly bloodthirsty and also by actually setting up a so-called caliphate by seizing land and territory, holding on to it for a while and implementing their version of Islamic law. With other jihadist groups, when they've lost their leaders, we've seen them very quickly replace them. And I think that we will see that happen here. Uh, one uh, potential successor is a, a character named Abu Abdallah Kardash. Uh, like Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, he's apparently from Iraq uh, and apparently spent time in a prison camp uh, following the U.S. invasion in 2003. And Holly, he is, as you say, a, a symbolic loss. Um, but since you spent so much time on the ground inside of Syria, what is the state of ISIS today? Well, Margaret, you heard President Trump say just then, quote, we obliterated his caliphate. And that's true uh, in the sense that ISIS lost uh, its last remaining strip of territory back in March. Uh, but the Pentagon's own watchdog said in August that ISIS still has between 14 and 18,000 members in Iraq and Syria. Uh, and Kurdish forces in eastern Syria are holding, they say, around 12,000 accused ISIS fighters in their prisons. The fear there is a mass escape. Uh, we spoke with a U.S. general in Syria just last, last month 
prisoners, uh, and he described those prisoners as a, quote, contained fighting force. So yes, ISIS has lost all of its territory now in Syria and Iraq, but no, it is not a spent force. All right, Holly Williams there uh, reporting from Istanbul. Thank you. And joining us now here in studio with more details of the raid is Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, good morning to you, Mr. Vice President. Morning, Margaret. You were in the Situation Room watching this as it happened. I was. It, it, tell me about the decision. Behind, that, when was it made? Who made it? Well, first, let me just say this is a great day for America. Al-Baghdadi, the most wanted man in the world, is dead. And it's a tribute to the courage of our armed forces, special forces that executed the raid on the compound last night. But it's also a tribute to the decisiveness of President Donald Trump. We first received information early in the week about the possibility of his location. This was CIA? Um, it was through our intelligence agencies that the president rightly commended today. Through a combination of intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, we believe we knew where he would be. And by Thursday afternoon, the president and I were informed that there was a high probability he would be at the compound in Idlib province. The president immediately uh, directed our uh, commanders to develop military options. Those were presented to the president at the White House on Friday morning. But it was Saturday morning uh, that we received the actionable intelligence that allowed the decision that the president had made to move forward uh, to happen. And uh, it is a and it, it was incredible to be in the Situation Room and to see this unfold in real time mm -hmm. as our special forces were on the ground to see their professionalism over a period of two hours. But um, the war, America and the world are safer today uh, with the leader of ISIS dead. Uh, according to U.S. intelligence, though, ISIS has about eight branches. It, it had that right. battleground. It's lost in Iraq and Syria. But it has, as you know, a significant force in Afghanistan and inspiration all around the world. So uh, what impact will taking out Baghdadi have on the rest of those tentacles? Well, as the president said today, what, what the United States of America demonstrated last night is that uh, uh, this president, um, this country will be unrelenting in our fight against ISIS or any terrorist organization that threatens this country. But what does that mean for the drawdown of U.S. forces from Syria? Does that mean that Iraq has agreed to now host the majority of the presence being pulled out from Syria? Well, we, we, we have a military presence in Iraq. We have, as the president's made clear, an ongoing military presence in parts of Syria. But, but to be clear, you know, the, the president looked at the deployment of American forces in between traditionally Kurdish Syria and the Turkish border uh, and essentially believe that that was not the right place for our forces to be. American forces went into Syria, worked with our Syrian Kurdish allies to destroy the ISIS caliphate. Mm -hmm. The last inch of territory of the ISIS caliphate was captured in March. And the president looked at the circumstances where we had um, American forces essentially providing um, a, a safe zone patrol on the Turkish border. Uh, that was not the mission. So and I have, to tell you, I have to tell you, as the, as the father of a United States Marine, I, um, I, I couldn't be more grateful that we have a commander in chief that is always asking about, about, you know, whether or not American forces have to be in harm's way. So are, are and if they're not on the mission, they weren't on the mission. ISIS, the caliphate had been destroyed. So the president said, we'll bring them home. But last night, the president of the United States proved to the world mm -hmm. that our fight against ISIS is unrelenting. And by, and by uh, killing the leader of ISIS, the active right. operational leader of ISIS, who it was reported just two weeks ago was giving orders to ISIS fighters in Syria. Uh, we believe we'll have a measurable impact on the effectiveness of that terrorist organization. But we're not going to let up. We're not going to stop the fight. But and, and at the same time, we're going to continue to work with our allies to establish that safe zone mm -hmm. between Kurdish Syria and Turkey that the president had myself and Secretary of State Pompeo negotiate in Ankara just a week ago. But do I understand what you're saying is that the number of U.S. troops remaining in Syria is still being determined? You haven't locked in at a number yet. 
Well, we have uh, we have troops at Atanaf, and then also the president's made it clear that we are going to have forces to secure the oil fields in northern Syria uh, in order to then create a collaborative relationship on that More basis than with, with Kurdish, with our Kurdish Syrian allies. I mean, look, this is this uh, this operation last night though was a real testament mm-hmm. to the relationships that we forged uh, with Syrian Democratic forces who I can't detail, but played a role in this in terms of information that we were provided. Turkey's cooperation during the assault last night uh, was acknowledged today by the president. Uh, Well, uh, yes, fully cooperating with the deployment of special forces. But really, all the credit goes here to the decisiveness of this commander-in-chief and uh, to the courage and professionalism of the special forces of the United States. It was in... We, we were literally watching, Margaret, in real time mm-hmm. uh, as those helicopters set down, as they assaulted the compound, uh, and, we, and we heard those words that, uh, that uh, al-Baghdadi had been killed, uh, and yeah. I, I knew from that moment America was safer as a result. Uh, Mr. Vice President, I also want to ask you while you're here, you have been clear in saying there was no pressure put on Ukraine, no quid pro quo as it pertains to what is now being looked at as grounds for potential impeachment of the president. But we have had at least four U.S. officials under oath say that they had knowledge of a deal being offered that made military aid and a meeting with the president contingent on opening an investigation that relates to the company Joe Biden's son served on the board of. Are they all lying? I I can only tell you what I know. And what I know is that the transcript of the president's call with President Zelensky shows that there was no quid pro quo. He did nothing wrong. But were you aware of that deal that they are giving details of and sworn under oath? In all of my interactions with President Zelensky, we focused entirely on President Zelensky's agenda to bring about reforms to end corruption in Ukraine and to bring together the European community to provide greater support for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, president Zelensky said there was no pressure. Uh, we had a good meeting when the president had to cancel to stay home for a hurricane, and I met President Zelensky. Uh, the aid was released uh, after that meeting. and. Uh, but did you but have the, knowledge of the deal that these U.S. officials have described under oath? What I can tell you is all of my interaction on this issue with the President of the United States and President Zelensky focused entirely on three things. Number one, the United States of America's support for Ukraine following the Russian invasion of uh, Crimea and and the war that Russia has been fomenting there. We actually, this administration, different from the last one, have provided lethal weapons but, for but Ukraine, that, that and we've stood never with came them. Up in that phone call. Margaret, we've These stood with them. Did, did we you stood, have knowledge of what they're describing? We stood or with no? them. We stood with them to restore their sovereignty and territorial integrity. Number two, President Zelensky was elected in a historic landslide mm-hmm. and won parliamentary elections on an agenda to end corruption in Ukraine, and we very much wanted to understand the progress he was making on that. Mm-hmm. And thirdly, President Trump believe that it was time for the European community to step up. Those are the issues we made clear to President Zelensky and Ukraine. Uh, and uh, I think as, uh, as the facts continue to come out, the American people again will see there that in the president's transcript, my interactions, there was no quid pro quo. There was no pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, was entirely focused on issues. I, I haven't gotten a clear American answer people. from you on that, though, sir. I do have to leave the interview there. But are you saying you did not ever hear of such a deal? Is that what I understand you're describing? I, I'm, I'm telling you that all of my interactions with the president, all of my conversations with President Zelensky, were entirely focused on issues of importance to the American people, ending corruption, enlisting more European support and supporting Ukraine in a way that would restore its territorial integrity and stand by Ukraine for its sovereignty. All right. Mr. Vice President, thank you very much. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Margaret. Great day for America. We'll be back in one minute with former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Susan Rice.
We all have busy lives these days, and we don't want to waste a day recovering after a night out. That's why Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Pre-alcohol produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. This is a proactive solution that wards off feeling miserable the next day instead of a reactive approach like drinking electrolytes or eating greasy food. Enhance your mornings with Zbiotics. Go to zbiotics.com/cbs to get 15% off your first order when you use code CBS at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So, if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/cbs and use the code CBS at checkout for 15% off. Thank you Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. We are back now with President Obama's former national security advisor and UN ambassador Susan Rice. She had planned to join us to discuss her new book Tough Love, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For. We do hope to get to that as well, but it is just such tremendous news this morning. Um, Madam Ambassador, thank you for joining us. You were part of the administration at the moment the US first took military action against ISIS. What is your reaction to the death of al-Baghdadi? Well, obviously it's a major milestone and it's one that we all should be welcoming quite plainly, but it doesn't mean that the fight against ISIS is over uh, and it doesn't mean that we can declare mission accomplished uh, and, and just walk away. What we've seen time and time again in this part of the world is that when the pressure is relieved on terrorist organizations, whether al-Qaeda or ISIS, they are able to reconstitute. So we need to be vigilant. We need to maintain a, a minimal presence in order to ensure that the pressure stays on ISIS and they don't come back roaring. I, it is pouring rain out there. <laughs> Right behind you. I was standing in the pouring rain just a second ago, yes. Well, I I appreciate your bravery through that coming out. We're on the roof of of, uh, Jones Day here in Washington, uh, bringing you face the nation. Um, But back to the issue at hand, do do you know, was was President Obama informed of the death of al-Baghdadi by the administration? Did you know before the news today? No, there's no reason why I should know. Uh, There is a tradition of common courtesy of uh, presidents informing their predecessors of things of significance like this. Um, Since the White House seemingly didn't feel it necessary to inform the leadership of the intelligence committees on a bipartisan basis, I'm quite confident that they didn't do the normal protocol with respect to predecessors either. And during the Obama administration when, say, Osama bin Laden was taken off the battlefield. uh, As a matter of courtesy. As a matter of courtesy. well, you write in your book um, about the rise of ISIS uh, and that in 2014, when they took the city of Mosul in Iraq, that it took the intelligence community by surprise. It took policymakers by surprise. There was underestimation of how weak the Iraqi government was and just that ISIS could use the battlefield the way they did, as effectively as they did. Are you saying you see the risk now with the drawback in Syria that it appears is still happening, of creating the same kind of vacuum. We've learned in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and now in Syria repeatedly, that you can't take the pressure off and expect these groups not to reconstitute. They may come back with a different name and a different leader, uh, but the ideology remains and the ambition remains. And so, yes, I think it's very concerning that uh, President Trump made the decision a couple of weeks ago to withdraw our forces from northern Syria, leave the Kurds exposed, essentially enable the Turks to come in from the north and wipe them out of their traditional homeland and the Russians to come up from the south uh, and claim territory that, that had been denied to them by our, by our presence and by that of the Kurds. I think this is still very dangerous. We have ISIS that um, can come back even with new leadership. We have over 100 ISIS prisoners already that have uh, escaped, according to the Secretary of Defense. Uh, And this has been a decision uh, that seemingly was taken without consultation by the president with his closest advisors. And it's been hugely beneficial, uh, Mm -hmm. not only to ISIS, but also to Russia, 
Iran, and of course Assad, as well as Turkey. That, that's why I was pressing the vice president for some details on those number of forces being left in Syria, um, because it doesn't seem we have that kind of granular um, decision making just Marta, yet. And just this notion that somehow we're moving a handful of forces out of Syria to to be able to send them home. Do, do the American people understand that since May? President Trump has deployed 14,000 additional U.S. forces to Saudi Arabia and the Gulf mm -hmm. at a time when he's saying he wants to take the United States out of the Middle East. This is not, uh, this is not on the level. I want to ask you about something you write about in the book. You know, the public uh, may remember in the wake of the attacks in Benghazi that you were the person put forward by the Obama administration to explain what happened. The on information that Sunday, yes. on that first Sunday on shows like this one. And you say, obviously, that had tremendous political blowback for you, professional, but you reveal for the first time some really personal blowback. Yeah. Your I, daughter well, I, had to seek medical help because of what happened. I, I describe in the book how my nine-year-old daughter at the time, uh, after some weeks of this you know, very public and sustained pillaring of me, uh, started having what can only be described as hallucinations. And, of course, her father and I were terrified. Uh, she was seeing men coming out of walls at her. We took her to, to be evaluated. The doctors at Children's Hospital here in Washington were looking at, you know, is this psychosis, is mm -hmm. it a brain tumor, is it schizophrenia, is it a vision problem? And they thankfully, after several weeks, were able to rule all of that out and yeah. determine that it was a stress reaction to hearing through the television what I was enduring. Well, and a so lot I of those... that, Margaret, because I want people to understand that these things have real yeah. consequences for those who don't sign up for this. Those personal details in your book uh, that we mentioned, we have to leave it there and we'll be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This past week, the parade of witnesses for Democrats' impeachment investigation continued, picking up momentum with some key testimony from State Department officials. Ambassador Bill Taylor testified and gave the most sweeping and devastating testimony about President Trump's efforts to shake down the Ukrainian government. That was Democrat Jamie Raskin. Taylor's testimony was explosive, implicating President Trump as being part of an effort to withhold a meeting and military aid to Ukraine until President Zelensky would announce an investigation into former Vice President Biden's son and his business dealings in Ukraine. President Trump urged Republicans to get tougher and praised Democrats, saying... They stick together and they're vicious. They don't have a Mitt Romney in their midst. We go now to former Republican Congressman Trey Gowdy. He used to lead the main investigative committee in the House of Representatives, and he joins us this morning from Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, good to have you back on Face the Nation. Um, yes, Thank you. you told me earlier uh, that you had agreed to work for the White House earlier this month as outside counsel for the president on the impeachment proceeding, but you didn't. And that's because, as you describe it, a restriction on former members of Congress uh, in terms of communicating with an intent to influence for about a year after leaving office. So yes, when that year ends, will you be joining the White House fight? I have no idea. I don't represent the president as of today. I don't know what, if anything, will exist in January. It may be over. Uh, my sense is the president... Um, needs folks that can that can represent him now before the House, the Senate, um, and, and indirectly through television shows and print media. For one year, I can't talk to the House or Senate, and my reading of that statute, and it's a restrictive reading, I'll grant you, but my reading is I can't even communicate indirectly uh, on behalf of a person with the intent to persuade. So I could not come on your show and give advice to House Republicans or House Democrats on how they ought to run their investigation if I were working for the president. So I, I don't even know if I'm going to be alive in January. If Dallas doesn't start playing better, I won't be alive in January. So I don't know what, who I'll be representing. 
Well, it, it surprised a lot of people to hear you'd be thinking of coming back to Washington. You used to tell us in Face the Nation you were so sick and tired of politics here and you wanted to go back home. And you were going to dive into one of the most divisive, vitriolic arguments that could be had. Yeah, um, my wife asked me a lot of those same questions. To me, impeachment is the political death penalty, Margaret. Uh, there's so, a reason our country has never removed anyone from office. So um, I look at it as a lawyer. What process is entitled? Is someone entitled to if you are seeking to remove him or her from office right. and assign to them a stigma that will echo through the halls of history? How well, much process is due? Well, you, you're talking about process there, and that's very specific here in terms of some of the criticisms from Republicans of this Democrat-led uh, investigation. You said to me on this program in April in 2018 the following. Well, our, our private hearing was much more constructive than the public hearing. I mean, public hearings are a circus, Margaret. I mean, that's why I don't like to do them. I don't do many of them. I mean, it's a freak show. Do you still believe that? 100%. So um, these I, hearings should had... remain, these depositions should remain private? Well, you can't pick and choose which aspects of due process you're going to use. It's not just the privacy. I mean, the reason we respect executive branch investigations isn't because they're behind closed doors. It's because there are no leaks. I mean, John Durham, you have no idea what John Durham has been doing. You have no idea what Michael Horowitz is going to say in his FISA report. There were no leaks with Bob Mueller. You contrast that with the fact that Adam Schiff has had more press conferences this weekend than those three men have had in their lives. He uses an opening statement to give a parody. He lies about a whistleblower. So, Mm -hmm. yes, I prefer executive branch investigations because they're fact-centric, because you wait until the end to draw conclusions, and because there are no leaks. So I do understand the Republican frustration with the current investigation. My bias has always been towards investigations that wait until the end before they share their conclusions. It's just not fair to do it on an hour-by-hour basis. One other point, Margaret, there's a reason in courtrooms. The judge tells the jury, you can't even begin to make up your mind until the last witness has testified Mm -hmm. and the last piece of evidence has been introduced. I mean, if it's good enough for the justice system, why should it not also be good enough for the political system? So in other words, uh, the storming of the classified area by some Republicans was a bit of a political stunt. And you think that what is being revealed behind closed doors should be heard out before judgments are made on whether or not the president should be impeached? I think two things. I'm a rule follower. I threw a Republican out of a hearing because he was not a member of of the committee. Um, I didn't take pictures on the House floor, even though I was in the minority. I'm a rule follower. So I think if you're going to have private investigations with unlimited time for questioning and cross-examining witnesses, that's a good thing. What's not a good thing is to have selective leaks where you pick one sentence out of an eight-hour deposition, run to a bank of microphones, and try to, try to prejudice the outcome of an investigation. Again, Horowitz doesn't do it. Durham doesn't do it. Mueller didn't do it. All three of those investigations we have respect for. You're talking uh, about Justice Department investigations versus the political process absolutely, of impeachment. Absolutely. Yes, ma'am. But when it comes to the political process here with impeachment and those depositions behind closed doors, and about 47 Republicans are permitted to be in there for those depositions alongside Democrats, who are the majority, of course, we heard something this week that was viewed as pretty significant from Bill Taylor, the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine. Uh, He was about the fourth U.S. official to substantiate uh, in his detail, he said, from notes uh, that President Trump's aid to Ukraine and his conversation with the president, uh, all of this was predicated on the investigations of Burisma, the Ukrainian gas company Hunter Biden served on the board of, and alleged Ukrainian interference in the 2016 U.S. elections. Those are two quotes. Um, Does that sound appropriate to you? Well, let's take them separately. Um, Is it an impeachable offense to condition aid on cooperating with the 2016 election investigation? I mean, are we going to remove a president from office if he conditioned aid on figuring out who tried to interfere in our 2016 election? Well, Congress gets to decide what an impeachable offense is, but conditioning Uh, sounds a lot like quid pro quo. Well, you know, that means something for something. I need to know what both of those somethings is. If the something is we're not going to give you aid until you help us figure out who tried to interfere 
with, with the levers of democracy in 2016. Margaret, I can tell you, if, if a Democrat did that, we'd be adding something to Mount Rushmore. I mean, we spent two years as a country trying to figure out who tried mm-hmm. to interfere with our election. So clearly, it can't be an impeachable offense. It can't be an impeachable offense to ask for the server because Jim Comey wanted the server. So well, you're, you're, I need to know sorry, what's just to, the something. To be clear, on the server, sorry. you're talking about the Democratic National Committee's computer server. Are you saying it's hidden in Ukraine? I have no idea. I have okay. no clue. That the president the has said that, so it, well, it, it's I, a I, theory that's been debunked. I, it, well, this is the theory that has not been debunked. Jim, Jim Comey wanted the server. I don't think it's an impeachable offense for Bill Barr to also want the server. I don't have any idea where it is, uh, but I don't think it's an impeachable offense to say, if you know where it is, would you mind telling us? Keep in mind, that is the server the Russians hacked to gain access to emails. There was a point in time where we all wanted to know about that. So what is the statute of limitations on interfering with our 2016 election? I don't know. As for the rest of Taylor, I've read his, his opening yeah. statement, Margaret, but, but I, I would need to follow up with questions. I'd, be, right. I, I'd need to also watch what other members ask yes. and, and, and significantly um, what the cross-examination would have looked like before I can draw any conclusions. All right. Trey Gowdy. Thank you for your time today. We will be right back on this busy day with Senator Amy Klobuchar. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. We're now joined by Minnesota Senator and 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Amy Klobuchar. Good morning to you, Senator. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, Margaret. Uh, Thanks for braving the rain today. Um, I want to ask you, of course, about the news of the day, the death of ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Well, this was the takedown of a very, very dangerous terrorist. And so we have to uh, take this moment uh, to thank those that put themselves in danger. Uh, The decision was a good one. And uh, this is a guy uh, that was responsible uh, for the deaths of so many, so many Americans, so many innocent people. Uh, But as um, Susan Rice uh, just said a few minutes ago, uh, this doesn't mean that ISIS isn't still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still have, of course, over 100 of the ISIS fighters uh, that the defense secretary has said uh, got out uh, recently uh, of their confinement. And then we have others that are in a prison, and it's unclear who's going to be guarding that prison. So there are problems, not just in Syria, uh, but all over the world. And that's what concerns me overall about this president's decision-making and about what he has done in terms of breaking down our alliances, leaving the Kurds who gave us Mm -hmm. intelligence for this operation, uh, leaving them for slaughter. Uh, You you rightly thank the U.S. military and intelligence for this. President Trump signed off on this, right? He did. Uh, And this is a political win for him. You're trying to run against him to become the next commander-in-chief. Isn't this going to make it harder to run against him when he can say... He's the guy who got Baghdadi. Look, I have in the past, for instance, when uh, the president made the decision to respond uh, to Assad's use of sarin gas, I commended him for that decision. But just because you make some decisions, and you must as a commander-in-chief, and you must make those decisions for the security of this country, doesn't mean that his foreign policy overall has not been a disaster. The decision to get out of the Iranian agreement, the nuclear agreement, uh, which has allowed Iran to now uh, bust the caps to enrich uranium, the decision uh, to get out of the Russian uh, nuclear weapons agreement, the Mm -hmm. decision to get out of the climate change agreement at a time when our world is warming, sea levels are rising, and we're seeing floods and fires all over the world. Those uh, were very bad decisions. So unlike other Democratic candidates, would you pledge to keep a U.S. military presence in Syria? I would not have removed those 150 troops. Um, I would not have done it. I would not have given in to Erdogan when he called. Yeah, I would have kept them there. And I would have, uh, this would never have happened. But now this damage has been done. So the question is, what do you do now? Well, you keep trying to use your leverage um, to do everything to uh, defeat ISIS. And you try to do all you can for humanitarian aid. And you certainly try to use the leverage that we have remaining uh, to help the Kurds. 
you sit on the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, uh, meaning you have some oversight there uh, of the Justice Department. Do you think those uh, ISIS leaders who are responsible for the deaths of Americans all should be extradited for prosecution here to the United States? Um, Yes, I think that we should go after those leaders. But the point of this is uh, not really exactly what we're going to do now. The question is, what do we do going forward when the American people have a decision to make? Do they want to keep Mm -hmm. a president in that has been so divisive in this moment um, where this morning we are unified uh, behind getting rid of terrorists, that's for sure. But every morning, probably tomorrow and the next day, he wakes up and he starts going after immigrants, going after people of color, dividing people, and then not having people's back when it comes to bringing down pharmaceutical prices or mm-hmm. doing something about infrastructure or doing something to help our farmers who his trade war has left devastated in so many parts of the country. So I think the American people can come together and say, yes, we want to defeat a terrorist. Right. But then they look at what he does every single day to this country, and they want new leadership. Uh, you have criticized some of your fellow Democrats also running for the nomination for overpromising in terms of providing free services like uh, free college education and the like. But you are now offering uh, two-year college and technical schools. Yeah. Uh, how are you going to pay for that, and who gets hit with the tax yeah. if there is so one? I have always supported that. Uh, those are the fastest rising degrees uh, right now in terms of the number of jobs. We're going to have 74,000 openings for electricians, uh, nearly that many for plumbers, for medical tech people, for home care workers. But what is the that cost is where this that? is. The cost of this, my education plan is costs approximately uh, $500 billion, and I would pay for it uh, by taking the capital gains rate, uh, mm-hmm. which has been a ripoff for average Americans, and changing that to the personal income rate. I have shown everything, Margaret, how I'm going to pay for it. Because I think we've got a president that has added up debt, trillions of dollars, hasn't shown. I want to make college more affordable, double the Pell Grants, and do this in a smart way instead of paying for rich kids to go to college, which is sadly what my opponent's plans do. So if you make about $400,000 a year or so, your taxes are going to go up. Is that correct? For people under my plan, uh, yes. Okay. Um, Quickly on impeachment, uh, you believe that the whistleblower should testify. Is that Um, correct? I think it would be good to have the whistleblower testify. I don't know that it is necessary to have the whistleblower testify because we have people like Ambassador Taylor that have come forward with firsthand knowledge. The whistleblower was simply reporting on something Mm -hmm. that he had heard from others. I think what's most important is to keep getting the testimony of people that were actually there on the scene. That Ambassador Taylor testimony... Uh, was devastating. It showed that this was not just a one phone call, that this had been a plan for a long time for the president to put the interests of America behind his own personal interests to get dirt on an opponent. It's a pattern. He does it for his business. He does it for his partisan interests. He does it every single day. Senator, uh, I know we have to leave it there, but I want to thank you for braving the weather. Uh, <laughs> but also, I know you had to be somewhere for a campaign event, and you stayed around to, to well, talk to us. Well, this is an important day. So on this thank important you. day. Thank you. And we will be right back in a moment. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. For more now on the impact of al-Baghdadi's death on the war on terror, we are joined now by retired Navy Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. He's a former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and a CBS News military and homeland security analyst. Also with us is former acting director of the CIA and CBS News senior national security contributor Michael Morell. Uh, gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Welcome. Uh, it was extraordinary to hear the president for about 45 minutes share in detail, blow by blow almost, what this raid looked like. Um, Mike, I want to know from you what stood out and is it dangerous to have so much revealed? So let, I'll let Sandy answer the operational military question. Um, but to me, right, this is a great day. We should be really thankful that Baghdadi is gone 
And clearly the intelligence community, community and the U.S. military did an amazing job, and the president made exactly <coughs> the right decision. And the president thanked Gina Haspel, the CIA Absolutely. director. Um, and I think we'll learn more in the days ahead about what the intelligence was and, and how we got it, and, and, and we'll thank even more people. Um, bothered me a little bit some of what the president did in, in, in providing detail about taking back to the United States pieces of Baghdadi's body. It bothered me a little bit hearing the president talk about that some of that Syrian oil being ours, right? Because that's what inspires, that's what inspires um, some extremists. You know, the, the, the oil comments, Margaret, um, really validate, at least it sounds to people like it validates 40 to 50 years of conspiracy theories about what American foreign policy is all about, right? And it's not. Um, so a great, great day, but I think the president could have handled the, the press conference a little bit better. And Margaret, we do these operations all the time. Uh, the difference this one is, of course, the prominence of the target. And you're always worried about operational security. Uh, we rarely have a problem before the raid from people working in the White House or elsewhere because they know what the stakes are. They don't want anybody to get hurt. But after the, after the raid, there's usually a race to the microphone because people want others to know that they had a hand in it. And that's the sort of Obama thing. administration was harshly <clears throat> criticized for oversharing right. after the death. And so you want to be very careful with that. And, and um, there are operational details that we protect, uh, mm -hmm. sensitive techniques and that sort of thing. Uh, notwithstanding what Michael just said, I think from the operational side, I didn't really see anything that the president said that was of concern to me. There was a lot of other things he could have said that might have been problematic. Well, I want to play a soundbite from some of what he shared when he addressed the nation from the <coughs> diplomatic room earlier today. We were in the compound for approximately two hours. And after the mission was accomplished, we took highly sensitive material and information from the raid, much having to do with ISIS, origins, future plans, things that we very much want. Mike, what are you looking for in that trove? You're first looking for current plots, right? Um, is there anything that they're plotting today against any Western target or any target in Iraq and Syria that we need to move to defend against. That's the first thing you're looking for. The second thing you're looking for is, is how is ISIS thinking about where it is today and what are its strategic plans and intentions. It's the second thing you're looking for. And I think the third thing you're looking for, particularly with regard to Baghdadi, is how involved was he in the day-to-day -day operations? How, how involved was he? So we don't really know. Okay. But I would say this. When we, when we went in to get bin Laden, we didn't think he was involved in the day-to-day -day operations. When we brought all those materials back out of Abbottabad and went through them, we learned he was heavily involved in day-to-day -day operations. So you really don't know until you get your hands on that material and, and be able to look at it. It was notable the Vice President indicated that there was some uh, direct knowledge of events from Baghdadi. Yes. That stood out to me. And, Margaret, this is uh, maybe answer a question some of the viewers have, and that is, well, if you know where he is, why don't you just bomb him and kill him? Uh, instead, we put people at risk to go on the ground, first of all, because we'd like to capture him if we can. But also, this is a real treasure trove, and it'll tell you not only about what Michael said, but uh, their networks, how they get their finances, uh, how they communicate with each other. It's all very important at both a strategic, operational, and tactical level to get that sensitive site exploitation. Now, the, the president said these were uh, U.S. special forces. David uh, Martin <coughs> reported it was led by Delta Force in particular, but the president thanked a number of different countries. He repeatedly thanked Russia. He thanked Turkey for allowing use of its airspace. He also said that there was some Kurdish help as well. Uh, did his detail and who he thanked stand out to you? Was that sort of standard? Actually, uh, one of the complexities of these operations is that they do involve other countries. For example, if you're going to rescue a hostage and that hostage has somebody with them who's from another country, you want to consult with that country. There are overflight rights, there are basing rights, and a number of other uh, considerations. So I think it was actually appropriate uh, in the wake of the operation for him to, to thank some of those people. Some of those are characters we don't necessarily like very much. Uh, so that was a little concerning, but uh, it, it was well done, I thought. The Kurdish thank you stood out to me because it suggested to me that that's perhaps where the intelligence came from. You had, on this program before, said you were concerned about losing some of that intelligence that might be getting shared. Um, the president also said in his remarks that he planned or wanted to release some video of those last few moments of Baghdadi's life that he repeatedly uh, characterized, called him a dog, whimpering, crying. He wanted ISIS's followers to see 
him like that. Margaret, this is Would you advise on. this? This is piling on. This one of the, the one part of the president's remarks that did bother me was this continual piling on of humiliation. Of, a little bit of that is appropriate, but you're sending a signal to uh, some of his followers around the world that could cause them to lash out possibly more harshly in the wake you of You don't this. want a locker room kind of feel to this, right? And that was the one thing we worked really hard on after the Bin Laden raid, is don't make those kind of statements because it does inspire other people. You said specifically body parts stood out to you in terms of how the president described how they were handled. Can you describe or explain what you mean by that in terms of some of so I think it's how all right. I think it's all right resonate. to say I think it's all right to say that we um, used you know DNA matching to figure out that it was him. But to actually talk about um, uh, body parts and actually bringing them back with us, right? Um, so that we have them here with us, I think is going too far. And one of the things, Margaret, that um, is this fight is all about mm-hmm. is religious freedom. It's about respect for other religions. And if you look back to the bin Laden raid, as much as we yeah. detested that man and as much harm as he did to our nation, we treated his body with respect mm-hmm. that is due under Islam. Uh, right. And uh, this yeah. was a little bit tough. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for your analysis. On this historic day, we also want to remember the families of ISIS victims, James Foley, Stephen Sotloff, Peter Kassig, and Kayla Mulder, and the thousands whose names we don't know. From Jones Day Law Firm, Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. Many put their hope in Dr. Serhat. His company was worth half a billion dollars. His research promised groundbreaking treatments for HIV and cancer. Scientists, doctors, renowned experts were saying, genius, genius, genius. People that knew him were convinced that he saved their life. But the brilliant doctor was hiding a secret. Do not cross this line that was being messaged to us. Do not cross this line. A secret the doctor was desperate to keep. This was a person who was willing to cold-heartedly just lie to people's faces. We're dealing with an international fugitive. From Wondery, the makers of Over My Dead Body and The Shrink Next Door comes a new season of Dr. Death, Bad Magic. You can listen to Dr. Death, Bad Magic ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.